Brothers and sisters of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, this afternoon we are going to take a look at Genesis 37, at the life of Joseph. And perhaps this seems like a bit of an odd choice to you, to choose a story of Joseph being sold into slavery by his brothers, a story, a sermon for New Year's Day. But as we get into the passage today, I think we'll discover that there is a lot about Joseph that will speak to all of us. There's hardly anybody here that, that can truthfully say that they don't relate to Joseph on any level. Whether it's in the highs of his life or whether it's in the lows of his life, at some scale or another, we can relate. There's things that we can learn. It's also a story that obviously speaks to us as Christian households, as Christian families. Here you have a chance to look at a, at a story of a people of God, a family of God, and yet a family with a lot of trouble, a lot of issues. And as we look at it, you discover some of the things that lead to their lives going wrong. But I think especially it's appropriate to look at the story of Genesis 37 and also at the story of Joseph on New Year's because of the fact that it highlights for us the providence of God. It reminds us on day one that as we look out on the year ahead, that there's nothing in life that occurs outside of God's control, that everything happens for a reason. Now, when we look at Genesis 37, it's particularly important to, to take a look at verse 11, a verse that tells us that his brothers were jealous of him. We're told that his brothers were jealous of him, and that is a key to understanding this chapter because it is ultimately a story of Jealousy. And there's a number of lessons, a number of points that I'd like to draw out of this passage then today. And the first is a rather simple one, but a true one. Jealousy starts with wanting what someone else has. It's the first lesson that we can draw out of this passage. Jealousy starts with wanting what someone else has. Is that not ultimately what's going on in our passage today? Joseph's brothers, they want what Joseph has. And what is it that Joseph has? Well, he has the love of his father. We're told that Jacob loved Joseph more than any one of his other sons. And naturally, that leads us to ask, well, why? What is so special about Joseph? Well, the answer to that is this. Joseph was Rachel's boy. Let me explain that. If you back up in Genesis and you take a look at the life of Jacob, you discover that he is a man who ends up with, with four women, with two wives and two concubines. And that's part of a, a, a much longer and more complicated story, and I'm not going to get into that this afternoon. But he ends up with these four women in his life, but only one of them is his true love the woman that he loved, and that is his wife, Rachel. But the sad thing about that story is that Rachel wasn't able to have any children. And so as time goes on, his other wives, the other concubines, they bear Jacob ten sons, and Rachel has none. And that becomes a huge source of tension. It becomes a huge source of conflict in their lives. And the years go by, 
And Jacob gets older and older, and then one day we're told that God has mercy. God hears Rachel's prayers. He opens her womb, and he gives her a son, a boy named Joseph. And so when you read this account in chapter 37, when you read this story, you can't just look at Joseph as Jacob's son. You also need to see him as Rachel's boy. That special child that God gave to Rachel. And Jacob loved that child. In fact, Jacob, we're told, he loved that child more than he loved his other sons. And he'd done that from, from what seems to be the earliest of ages. If you look back a number of chapters, you discover a, a, a story, a quick story, of Jacob returning from where he was hiding out from Esau. So Jacob has been hiding for a number of years from the wrath of his brother Esau, and one day he decides to come home, and he takes all of his possessions, and he takes his family, everything he has, and he's on his way home. And on the way back, we're told that he gets word that Esau has come out to meet him, that he's taken a few hundred armed men. And instantly, Jacob assumes the worst. He thinks, well, of course, Esau's coming out to seek his revenge. But he's got everything he owns with him. It's not like he's going to be able to get away. And so Jacob, he decides to come up with a strategy. Jacob figures he'll come up with a plan to limit the damage. He decides he's going to split up his family. He's going to split up his possessions. And he's going to send them one by one. Because that way, if Esau attacks the first of them, at least the last group might get away. And notice how he divides up his possessions and his family. The first ones that he sends to Esau, the first ones that he sends off, the sacrificial ones, so to speak, are the two concubines and their four sons. And after that, what follows up? Well, Leah is sent with her six sons. But who does he save for last of all? Who is the very last one to go? Well, it's Rachel and Joseph. And what kind of a message do you think that that sent to the boys? It told them that Jacob was willing to go to any length to protect that child. Jacob was willing to sacrifice every one of his other sons before he'd be willing to risk Joseph. He'd become obsessed, you could say, with this child. This child was the one thing that mattered to him in his life. And he loved him more than all the rest. So his brothers were jealous. They wanted to feel appreciated. They wanted to feel some of their father's love. And their jealousy, we're told in the text, that it grows to hatred. And the text gives us a few reasons why they hate Joseph. And I think we have to acknowledge that you can't see Joseph as completely innocent in all of this. I don't think it's fair to see Joseph as completely innocent. Yes, he, Jacob was the one who might have created this situation. But Joseph, he didn't help the situation. First thing we notice is that we're told at some point that he brings a bad report of his brothers. And when you read that in your text, you could almost read it in the sense of it is an exaggerated report. Everywhere else that this phrase is used in Scripture, a bad report, it is used in the sense of, of taking something that is true 
but maybe blowing it a little bit out of proportion. And so whatever happened there, I think it's safe to say that Jacob, at least to some, or Joseph, to some degree, he misrepresented his brothers. And they hated him for it. And then on top of that, Jacob buys Joseph this coat, and we don't know exactly, it's very difficult to tell exactly what that coat was about. But the general sense, the general agreement is that it had something to do with almost royalty, that it was given to someone in a position of headship. And then finally we're told that Joseph has these dreams. He has these dreams about his brothers bowing down to him. And when we talk about dreams in Scripture, it's almost always in connection to a revelation from God. So when Joseph says that I had a dream, Joseph is saying, God showed me something. And God did, in fact, show him something. God gave him a glimpse. God gave him a little peek into the future. God gave him a glimpse of what his life would look like. And it involved his brothers bowing down to him. But rather than showing discretion, rather than showing some wisdom, rather than maybe keeping these things to himself, Joseph decides to share these things with his brothers. He comes to them and says, I had a dream and you all bowed down to me. And clearly, it's not received well. And so I think to some degree or another, we can at least say that there's something about this that speaks at least to, to Joseph's immaturity, maybe to his youthfulness. Not only was he a boy who was, who was lifted up in his father's eyes, a boy who was almost a god in his father's eyes, but he was now coming to them and saying, no, I also, for real, I'm going to be lifted up. I'm going to rule over you. And they hated him for it. And you know, it's kind of a sad introduction to this family, is it not? It's kind of a sad introduction. We meet this family, this people of God. They've received the special promises. They're the patriarchs. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. And yet their family is a complete mess. There's animosity, there's tension, there's hatred. It's completely dysfunctional. And you can't help but read it and say, well, where did this all go wrong? Where did it go wrong? Well, it started with this. It started with this. They had messed up priorities. They had messed up priorities. They were focused on the wrong things. Jacob was so focused on Joseph and on what Joseph was doing and whether Joseph was happy that he wasn't focused on being a God-fearing man, on being a godly father. And Joseph's brothers, they were so focused on being Joseph, on wanting what he had, that they weren't focused on being godly young men, on being God-fearing sons. They were focused on the wrong things. And I think on a day like today, the beginning of another year, we can ask ourselves, what are we focused on? What are our priorities? You know, you could take good things, good things that God has given us, and you could still mix up your priorities. Because nothing, nothing in this life is more important than your relationship with God. Nothing. 
And typically, typically, we think that the things that get in the way of that, we right away want to tie that to money or to wealth or to power. Those are the things we want to connect it to. But you could take your husband or your wife and you could make them an idol. You could take your boyfriend or your girlfriend and you can make them an idol. You could take your children, you can take your child and you can make it an idol. And in many ways, that's exactly what Jacob did. But I want you to recognize this afternoon that you can also take what someone else has and make it an idol. And that's what Joseph's brothers were doing. They thought if they could just get rid of Joseph, if they could just be Joseph, then things would be okay. Then life would be fine. Then they would be happy. And we do that also today. So often we chase these things that we think will make us happy. So often we chase these things that other people have. We think, if I just had his job or her job, if I just had his wealth, well, then I would be happy. We think, if I had a boyfriend, if I had a girlfriend, then I would be happy. We think, if God, God, if you would just allow me to get married, then I would be happy. If you would give me more children, God, if you would just give me a child, we say, then I would be happy if my family, if my family were just a bit more like their family, then I would be happy. Well, I wonder, as you look back on the past year, I wonder what it is that you've been chasing. And I wonder, as you look to the year ahead, I wonder what it is that you plan on chasing. And if you're truly honest with yourself, and if you truly look at your life, do you have to admit that whatever that thing is, do you have to admit that maybe that thing has gone above and beyond your relationship with God? Well, if that is the case, then the Word of God is calling you today to reevaluate your priorities. Because whenever you put someone, whenever you put something above and beyond your relationship with God, whenever you are jealous for something else more than you are jealous for God, whenever something is the object of your affection more than God is the object of your affection, then it never, ever leads anywhere good. Then it never ends well. And that's the second lesson that we learn in our passage. Jealousy never ends well. Jealousy just leads to more jealousy. It leads to bitterness. It leads to anger. It leads to rage. It leads to hate. And that's what you see in the life of Joseph's brothers. What started out as, as, as jealousy has over time turned into hate. And it has grown and it has grown and it has grown. And one day when the opportunity knocks it turns into something much, much worse. Because that's the way it is with jealousy. Jealousy never flatlines. Jealousy never just exists. It never just is. 
Jealousy is always, always growing. It's escalating. And we see that in our text. We're told that one day, or Jacob, he decides to send Joseph to check on the flock. He asks him to go and to check on his brothers and the sheep. And I want us to recognize this afternoon that, that he's not just saying, could you step out the back door and have a look in the field? Now, Jacob ends up sending Joseph on a trek of some 50 miles. Joseph ends up a long, long way from home. And after a series of events, we're told that, that finally he does see his brothers. He does see the flock. But at the same time, we're told that they likewise see him. And then we get a glimpse of how far this jealousy has progressed. We're told this. They say this. They say, here comes this dreamer. Come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. Then we will say that a fierce animal has devoured him, and we will see what will become of his dreams. Notice that those dreams come up again. They hated Joseph for those dreams. They looked at him and thought, oh, he thinks that God has revealed something to him? He thinks that God has told him that he'll reveal or that he'll rule over us? Well, just wait. We're going to take him, we're going to kill him, we're going to throw him in the pit, and then we will see what God will do for him. You know, they didn't much care whether this was actually a revelation from God or not. They were jealous, and it had grown so much that they didn't really care to what degree God was involved in the picture. They were going to kill Joseph. It's just a matter of how. And so they come up with this plan, and the original plan involves just killing him and throwing him into a pit. But two brothers, we're told, two brothers come up with differing plans. And when we look at both of those plans and both of those brothers, it actually gives us a bit more insight into actually how dysfunctional this family really is. Let me start with Reuben. Now the text suggests that Reuben was not actually around when the original plan was brought up. And so when he comes back and when he hears about the plan, he intervenes and he says, let's not kill him. Let's not shed his blood. He says, instead, what we should do is we should take him and we'll just throw him in the pit and we'll leave him. But the word of God also gives us some insight into his thinking. And so we understand that his plan is not just to leave him, but that actually he has a plan to come back later to rescue him, to restore him to his father. And when you read about this, you can't help but think, well, that, that Reuben, he seems like a pretty good guy. But I want to reflect on Reuben for a moment. And I also want to reflect on his motives. Because Reuben was a guy who was not exactly known for setting the moral bar. Reuben was not exactly a guy who was known for doing the right thing. A couple chapters earlier, Genesis 35, we get a one-verse glimpse into the life of Reuben. One verse, and that's it. And there we read this. We read that Reuben went in, and he slept with his father's concubine. And Israel 
Jacob, we're told, heard of it. It was a huge offense. It was a public shaming of his father. And Israel, Jacob, heard of it. And he never forgot about it. Years and years later, when Jacob is on his deathbed and when he's blessing his sons, he passes over Reuben, the eldest. He passes him over. And he passes him over because of that sin. Because of that offense. And so many commentators suggest that it's entirely possible that Reuben is thinking more about Reuben than he's thinking about Joseph when he comes up with this plan. That he thinks that maybe it's possible if he, if he somehow uh, restores this prized son to his father that some of his favor might be regained. Think about how he reacts when he finds out that the boy is gone. He says, the boy is gone and I... I, where shall I turn? And even if we want to say today that we believe Reuben had entirely good intentions, we still can't say that he did the right thing. He for sure did not do the right thing when he should have. He did not assert himself as the eldest brother. He did not point out sin when he saw it. He did not confront them and point out that they were being ungodly and evil and wicked and that the things that they did did not please the Lord. No, instead he decided to come up with a plan. He didn't do the right thing when he should have. And so ultimately his plan doesn't end up working out. Because when he stepped away for a few minutes, we're told that a group of Ishmaelite, Midianite traders that they come by, and when they come by, the other brother, Judah, he comes up with his plan. He sees this group pass by, and instantly a kind of a light bulb goes off for him. And he says this. He says, what profit is it? What profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? He's talking about his brother. He's talking about his brother. And he's talking about profit. He's talking about dollar signs. How wrong is that? And sure, he tries to make it sound okay. Or he tries to make it sound okay and says, no, we shouldn't kill him because he's, he's our own brother. He's our own flesh. But let's be honest here. On the one hand, he's saying, well, don't kill him. I mean, he's our brother. But sell him? Sell him to the Midianite traders? Sell him as a slave to make a buck? That seems okay. It's actually remarkable how far this jealousy has gone. How far this has worked out in the sin of this family. What started out as jealousy grew to bitterness, it grew to hatred, it grew to anger. And now they're actually talking about killing their brother. They're talking about selling him as a slave. What started out as jealousy has just snowballed out of control. And that's the way it is with sin. That's the way it is with sin. Jealousy, sin, left unchecked, it just grows and grows and grows and it begins to consume you. It begins to overpower you. 
I wonder if any of you have ever read the book or, the, or watched the movie Lord of the Rings, The Hobbit. One of the main characters in that story is a character named Bilbo Baggins. And Bilbo, we're told one day that he stumbles across this ring. And this ring has this incredible power. Every time he slips on the ring, he's invisible, he disappears. And so whenever he's in trouble, whenever he's surrounded by enemies, he can just slip on the ring. But you discover that this ring also has a dark side. Because every time that he puts the ring on, it begins to consume him a little. Every time he puts the ring on, he becomes a bit more and more obsessed with the ring. Every time that he uses the ring, it seems to have a bit of a bigger hold of his soul. And so as the movie progresses, as the book progresses, the thing that you see is that Bilbo is slowly consumed he begins to become more and more overpowered by the force, by the power of this ring. And that's the way it is with sin. Whatever our eyes are focused on, wherever our hearts are, whatever our priority is, that is the thing that will begin to consume us. If you're jealous of someone or something, and if that jealousy, if that sin is left unchecked, it will grow and it will grow and it will grow and it will begin to take a hold of your soul. It will begin to own a part of you. I want us to consider for a moment this afternoon how serious jealousy is. Think of what the Bible says about it. James 3, verse 15 says this, For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder. Messed up priorities. There will be disorder and every vile practice. Proverbs 27, verse 4, Wrath is cruel and anger is overwhelming. Those two things are bad. But who can stand before jealousy? The first Murder recorded in the Bible, Genesis 4. Cain kills Abel. And why? Because he is jealous of him. And I'm not saying this afternoon that any of you who struggle with jealousy are going to go on to become murderers. That's not the point. But the word of God is clear that jealousy, sin, left unchecked, it never leads anywhere good. It just takes you further and further and further away from your relationship with God. And the more that you are removed from your relationship with God, the more that you end up chasing after these other things, and you chase and you chase and you chase. And one day you find yourself empty unsatisfied. And that's the lesson I want to close with this afternoon. Jealousy ends up leaving you empty. Think about our passage. 
Think about where jealousy ultimately brought these individuals, where these messed up priorities, where they brought them. I mean, Joseph's brothers think that things are, are done. They've done the deed. They've solved the problem. They've moved on. They just need an explanation for their father. And so they take that prized coat. They tear it up. They pour blood on it. They scuff it up, and they send it back to their father. They don't even have the guts to look him in the eye. And his brother, or his, his father, when they seize it, he instantly assumes the worst. He thinks that tragedy has befallen my son. His son, his prized son, Joseph. And he's convinced that he is gone. He says this, he says, I will go down to Sheol. I will go down to the grave in mourning. I will not be comforted. So where did jealousy get them? Where did their messed up priorities get them? Look at Joseph's brothers. Did they get their father's love? Did they get their father's affection? No. We're told that all his sons and all his daughters try to comfort him, but he refuses to be comforted. In fact, in the next passages, in the next chapters, you discover that Jacob actually blames the boys for Joseph's death. If anything, they are further away from their father. And where did Jacob, where did Jacob go in all of this? He spent a lifetime being consumed with this child. He spent a lifetime focused on this son, loving him more than everybody else. And then one day when that child, when that thing is taken away from him, he finds himself empty, finds himself shattered. And the truth is that if we live this way, if this is the way that we live, God's word is saying that one day you will end up empty. One day, that's what will happen. If you live so much for one thing and you become blinded to your relationship with God as the only thing that matters in life, you can chase and you can chase and you can chase, but one day, you'll end up empty. It's a whole message of the gospel. That's the whole message that Jesus Christ came to bring. And there are remarkable parallels in the life of Jesus Christ to this story. Jesus Christ came. Jesus Christ came and he brought a revelation from God. He brought a revelation from God and that revelation said that a kingdom was coming in which he would be king. Jesus Christ brought a revelation that said one day a kingdom is coming and he will rule. And how was he received because of that revelation? Well, we're told that he was rejected. And who rejected him? Those closest to him. He was rejected by his brothers. He was rejected by his hometown. He was hated. And the people that hated him the most were the religious leaders. They were the Pharisees. They hated him the most. And why? because they were jealous of him. 
They were jealous of his popularity. They were jealous of his influence among the people. And we discover that their jealousy, it grew and it grew and it grew. It was left unchecked. And one day, when the opportunity arose, they came up with a plan to kill him. Certainly we learned some things from the life of Christ, from what he teaches us. What do we see in Christ that he does infinitely better than the life of Joseph? Well, we see that he lives his entire life and he keeps his heart, he keeps his focus on God. With Christ, we see that his relationship with his Father, his relationship with God in heaven, that was his top priority. Jesus wasn't focused on the popularity. Jesus wasn't focused on making a great name for himself, on earning money. Jesus was focused on the things of God. Because true happiness and true peace and true contentment, they can only be found in a relationship with God. True happiness, true peace, true contentment, they can be found in a relationship with God. They're not defined by this life. They're not defined by our circumstances. They're not defined by our riches or our poverty. They're not defined by our joy or our sorrow. They're not defined by our relationships, our children, our lack of children. Those things don't define a relationship with God. And Jesus knew that. Jesus Christ knew that. And he lived that way. And he's teaching us to live that way. Joy and peace and true contentment, they'll only be found in a relationship with God. And that relationship is made possible ultimately in Jesus Christ. And so if you're here this afternoon, and if you have to say that there is not true joy or true peace or true contentment in your life, then I urge you to pursue a meaningful relationship with God made possible in Jesus Christ. Because then you'll discover peace and joy and contentment and those things can be found even if you come from a broken home. Those things can be found even if you come from a dysfunctional family. Those things can be found even if you have fractured relationships. They can be found in any job. They can be found with a boyfriend, with a girlfriend, without one. They can be found with a child. They can be found without a child. They can be found in wealth. They can be found in poverty. True joy, true peace, true contentment, they can ultimately and they can only be found in a relationship with God made possible by Jesus Christ. And that is the lesson, that is the lesson that God is teaching Joseph. That's the lesson that God is teaching Jacob. 
That's the lesson that we see ultimately taught in the life of Jesus Christ. And that is the lesson. That is the lesson that I pray that God's word is teaching you. And that it's teaching me. And so as we look at another year, may that be the lesson we live for. May we be jealous for the things of God. Just as God is jealous for himself, God is jealous for his honor. God is jealous for his glory. God is jealous for his holiness. And God wants us to be jealous for those things too. Not for the things of the here and now. Not for the day-to-day things. Not for the temporary things. Don't mess up your priorities. True peace, true happiness, and true contentment. Those are the things that we need to live for. And we need to live for them as they're found in God through faith in Jesus Christ. May that be our aim. May that be our passion this year. Amen.